the Minor Constellations podcast, conversations with engaged thinkers and doers. I'm Kathleen Sampson. And I'm Yair And we're doctoral fellows at the research training group Minor Cosmopolitanisms, which hosts this podcast. In this episode, we talk to Gita Vestergaard, doctoral fellow associated with the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Research Group at the University of Stavanger, and our colleague in the RTG Minor Cosmopolitanisms, Anna Mikkelsen. Both researchers deal with questions within the environmental humanities, exploring the post-human through the prism of concepts like sacrality and liminality. The point of departure for the conversation is Gita's article, co-written with Dolly Jurgensen, titled Making Specimens Sacred, Putting the Bodies of Solitario Georges and Kurua on Display. The conversation weaves Gitter's work on the display of extinct giant tortoise Lonesome George through with Anna's work on the Oshun Oshugbo Sacred Grove in Nigeria and its inscription into UNESCO as a World Heritage Site. It's so good to have you here and thank you uh, for joining us for this conversation. The preparation, the conversations that we had, the texts that we read were very exciting, so I'm looking forward to see how will this conversation look like. And, and we wanted to begin uh, by just hearing a bit about your projects as you're both thinking the post-human, who are your uh, protagonists, what is interesting for you, and yeah, just tell us uh, something about your projects. Yeah, thank you for inviting me into this conversation. It's uh, nice to connect with you and we connect with Anna that I know from, uh, from before. So uh, I'm looking now at the extinction of islands, and that's mainly because the species within island groups and archipelagos are very vulnerable to domestic uh, changes in, in their environment. So, and then obviously also because of colonialism and European colonization and the blooming of natural history museums in Europe, you have a lot of animal remains from extinct animals within these museums that are very disconnected from the habitats that they have been lost from. So this is what I'm sort of like looking at the remnants of species in connection with, with islands and to see how we can think extinction and colonialism together and how they have impacted each other and, and why all of these remnants are in museums so far away from where they are extinct today. So um, I'm writing about the Ushun Ushogbo sacred grove in Nigeria, which was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2005. So Ushun is, is an Orisha, which is a divine energy, basically, in the traditional Yoruba cosmology. And it's basically said that this Orisha, this energy, has manifested as the Ushun River. And although... The meaning of Ushun is actually the, the spring or a source that keeps on expanding. It has somehow still concentrated on this very specific place in Oshogbo where it's, it's said that this is the abode of, Ush, uh, of Ushun. And basically I'm writing about this UNESCO declaration and all these different things that kind of happened around this place. And um, the story that I wish to bring forward is a story that I feel has not gained so much space yet. And it's the story of Ushun being the agent of many of these political decisions made. And this is for sure like engaging with a lot of the local narratives um, found within the Orisha community that works with the idea that Ushun communicates through 
for instance, humans or through like, you know, divination and all of this. And in that story, it's definitely Ushun who is the protagonist. Also the whole aspect of like the non-human and other than human agency, right? I think that's where we have these overlaps of, of basically also like thinking our world differently, no? And thinking it through something that is not necessarily centered around the human. Right. And um, just to go back to the question of protagonists, um, the Gita, we, we kind of like came together over an article that you're about to publish, right? And um, in that article, I think you're talking more specifically about your work in the Galapagos. So maybe you can also just tell it very briefly, tell us about like the, the figure that you're working with there, because it's kind of also an interesting case and also an interesting protagonist that inserts itself maybe like in a similar way to what Anna's just talking about now. Yeah, yeah, I definitely recognize what Anna is saying. So the article that I that I just wrote with my uh, with my supervisor, so it's a co-authored article. Uh, my supervisor is Dolly Jorgensen, as you've done a, a lot of work on extinction and the display of, of extinction in museums. So it's been such a, jo- a joy uh, writing an article together with her, and we sort of comparing two two case studies of, of, of animal displays of the last of its kind. So what I'm looking at is a figure or an animal called Lonesome George, who was found on Pinta Island back in the 70s, where the species was already, like they thought the species had gone extinct. And then they find us a single one that is left and they bring it back to a breeding center uh, at Santa Cruz that is also part of the Galapagos Islands. And here they try to sort of make him reproduce and, and that never happens. He lived there in captivity for 40 years. This is very usual also with, with a lot of endlings that we know, the last of the kind. And that's the same with Lonesome George. And when he died, they decided to preserve his body. So his bodily remains still exist today and they are exhibited within the breathing center. They actually like made a customized building for him. So he's the only one in, in that building and you go there to see him. You have to first stand in a room to acclimatize because it's so hot outside in this tropical environment. Then you get let into his chamber. And then you can stay there for six minutes and then you have to leave because there's so many tourists that want to see him that sort of cycles in and out of the room and they want to keep the temperature really low so that his uh, his remains uh, is not going to take any damage. But it's like, you know, you build a castle, you build something so fancy, that, like after he's dying, but before, you know, no castles for you before, right? Um, so it's also kind of, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to hear. Yeah, it's, it's a real, tra- it's such a tragic story, especially with the name. I mean, that he's known as the Endling, Lonesome, Lonesome George, George, who lives in captivity for 40 years. 40, and, and then people try to yeah. breed with him or whatever, but then he gets kind of like monumentalized. Um, or I guess as you're kind of talking about in your article, kind of sacralized, mm. um, that's, yeah. that's a word that we'll come to, I think, later in our discussion, but like yeah. that he becomes this almost like sacred object or mm. figure for science, mm. um, but he just remains Lonesome George, the in last captivity. of his kind, yeah. yes, in this weird room. I mean, it's such Still a, it's kind of captivity. a bizarre and, yeah. and, uh. and very, and, yeah, kind of uncomfortable. Mm. It really provokes a lot of feelings, I think, even when you see him. 
So, so I have to say that when I hear you speak about it and when I read your article, it really, it, it really touches upon a lot of things that I was, I was very preoccupied with when I, uh, when I was writing my master's. So today I'm in a completely different field, but I was working about the question of responsibility towards the environment and towards nature and towards animals. And what I found fascinating about your article is that you're actually touching upon the entanglements of the human and the non-human when it comes to extinction. Can you maybe say something about it and explain the, the ways in which you think about extinction in your article? Yeah, it's a, it's a very layered, layered question. Yeah, and because what we think now is that we are in a mass extinction, which would be the sixth mass extinction that we that we are now heading towards or already sort of experience and, and the primary sources for that is the human. It's, it's, the, it's the way that we have taken up space. It's the way that we consume. It's the way we pollute. It's the way that we overhunt, that we, yeah, mainly just taking up too much space and pushing out species from, from that space. And then you come to a place like Galapagos, where I think 97% of the island is safeguarded for nature. It's a national park. Right. It's um, It was the first heritage site to be listed on the World Heritage Site list of UNESCO in the 70s. It's a place where, where, where you want to restore uh, nature. But it's, it's a very specific kind of nature you want to restore, and that is the nature before humans started to inter intervene or or sort of uh, impact the, that that ecosystem that exists in in the archipelagos, and and Lonesome George and the tortoises in general, the giant tortoises, is part of this uh, this understanding of the Galapagos that you want to sort of keep it as a I think they even they call it like a living museum and a showcase for for evolution. And that's because this place is so connected with with Darwin, the way that he discovered evolution and his theories of natural selection so it's it's become this sacred site for science but in a in a very specific way yeah so it's it's the it's the animals that that they associate with this evolution and that's the animals that was there before humans and now we see with the giant tortoises that they really really struggle to survive and that's because of overhunting that's because of um, the way that, that human ha has taken that space and now that it's been safeguarded as a sacred site for, for science you're trying to restore those species that are sort of on the brink of extinction and that would probably not be able to survive in that surroundings without the human help yeah. of conservation to make them survive yeah so you have invasive species of goats of rats of domestic cats and and dogs they can survive mm -hmm. there they, they take up that space but they're also pushing out those native species so i don't know if this is answering your, your question uh yeah but it it, it yeah. yes um, yeah but i wanted to also I remember in our exchange, so preparing this talk, you said something mm. about the ways in which you refer and you and you go, want to go beyond the Anthropocene. So maybe yeah. if you can say something about that, I found it to be very interesting, the ways in which you say, okay, I, I, I interact with that. I know that we live in that time, but you refer to kind of thinking yeah. from the future. And I found it to be very interesting what you said, and maybe you can share it with us once again. 
Yeah, so it's been been defined that we're sort of living through the Anthropocene and that is that the human is, is centralized, that we, that we define this geological age, that we are, that the humans are, are creating like a layer uh, in, in the geological record. And what I'm, I'm trying is like, you can either accept that and then let species go extinct, or you can try to, to think around what can we do so that layer become as thin as possible so that we get out of the Anthropocene as quickly as possible. And, and that is to sort of work with, with other theories. Mm. That is to decentralize the human, that is to sort of equalize the balance and, and the value of different species to different mm-hmm. habitats that, that we can coexist instead of uh, pushing out species. And um, yes, yeah, so that's what I mean that, I'm, that my project or sort of my, my aim with my PhD is to figure out how do, how do we move away from sort of centralizing the human? Yes. How do we bring in different ways of living with, with the other, with the non-human, with everything that surrounds us? Uh, and that's more leaning towards like post, post-human theory. Yeah, this is also one of the ways in which Anna's project or the way that Anna's mm-hmm. thinking as well is, is I think for me also while you're talking now about how, for example, um, this uh, sacred site for science, the Galapagos, are preserved in a way that kind of sets it apart from humanity generally, as though they were ever a pristine nature. Mm. So I think what's interesting for me is the ways in which these these two sites that you both focus on are both kind of separate from the human, but also the human plays a very particular role. So Anna, maybe you can talk a little bit about where the post-human and the human intersect in your work. I mean, sure. What I find find pretty interesting is this like pre-human in the case of Galapagos, right, like like going before the human, uh, because in Oshogbo and in the grove, the relationship is established to the river, at least what is being written down in the nomination file for the UNESCO declaration, is that the interaction with the river begins with the settlement of human beings along the riverbank. And then basically every August there is a Oshun festival in Oshokbo where this relationship between the river and the human is being renewed. That's why it's also a cultural landscape, right? So this idea of the human interacting with the landscape in an in also in a spiritual way and basically this idea of keeping something frozen in past is very different in the grove because what they look at like in in unesco you have this uh, notion of authenticity right like how authentic is a place and basically authenticity was often understood as how much does it look like it always has looked like and it was directed towards monuments and to often christian monuments and something tangible right but mm. in the cultural landscape which unesco enlisted the groves which was it was a category that was introduced in the 1990s and it was kind of like a change within unesco politics uh, this kind of like global strategy opening up to other cultures and and beliefs and so on mm. but what happens is that the Authenticity is based in that the spirituality is still practiced in the same way. So it's not something tangible. So so it's not about freezing something in time in the way that we see it, mm-hmm. which happens a little bit on Galapagos, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah, what right. is a site and what is culture, right? So I think it's very different from 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 what we see in in Galapagos with the natural site enlisted on the UNESCO list, no? No, but I I think that's really interesting with Anna's site and 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 the Galapagos. I feel that there's two things going on. There's both like this 
intangibility, but also a try to materialize the intangible. Yeah. So you have this this goddess that are not really to be found anywhere. That is energy that is flowing and and the river that the moves. But then you still want to to bounder mm. bounder down. This is where she belongs. Mm. This is this is what we can safeguard because this is. This is like tangible. This is something where we can make regulations. Yeah, I mean, it's a question of like discursive boundaries too, right? It's like, you know, here is the river. Here's where she belongs. It's a cultural Mm -hmm. landscape. It's a heritage site. Here is the Galapagos. It's a certain kind of natural site. Are we talking about the Galapagos now as a site? Because I didn't know that this is the protagonist that becomes the site, right? Because then it's, we're not talking about two... Because it's exactly the kind of thing that makes it interesting, but also problematic to think together the mm-hmm. two things. It's not two natural sites. We're talking about animal being preserved in cages. It's not mm-hmm. that we're talking about the Galapagos. Now, I mean, just uh, for, for me, understanding what what are we, which kind of. Mm. What are we talking about preservation here, right? Mm. I mean, but I think what is interesting with the Galapagos case and the turtle, because what Gide is also writing about is how intertwined they mm. are, right? That the sacred character of the turtle depends on the sacred character of the site, mm. right? So, so basically, the turtle gets sacralized, right? <laughs> by this inscription into this larger, right? Whereas with the grove, we basically see how it's already sacred and we could maybe even argue that it's getting desacralized through the institution or maybe the institution is being sacralized if we look at the inscription in a certain way. Mm. So I, I, I think that the site is like for Gita's case, like the, the site Galapagos, the turtle is so entangled in that and that is itself why it also gets sacred, right? Mm-hmm. The turtle. Because of this narrative that it's 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 taken place in with the Galapagos. So now that you mentioned the sacred Anna, maybe we can talk about how both of you in different ways are working with the concept of sacrality. And I mean, I know that you, for example, focus on this divine energy of Ashun and also Gita, your article addresses the sacred in relation to these extinct species on display. So maybe you can say something about, about the sacred in relation to your work. Because I, for example, come from a place or a background where the using the sacred is not the minor mode, right? It's the major mode and it, it doctrinates and it uh, creates political conflicts, right? Because it is a major mode of, of explaining things. Whereas what I read in your work, you're actually... It's like thinking, an intervention, right? It's an intervention that is an intervention of reading differently, mm. of reading not from the major narrative, you want to call it scientific. Secular. Exactly. So maybe if you can say something about, about that, like what kind of work does it serve in your project? Thinking with a minor mode or differently, as you said before. Well, it's like to me, it's, uh, we, we kind of redefine the sacred as something set apart with special meaning. And then there's lots of different definitions of the sacred, it being very tied to religion or transcendence. But what we're looking at here is, is when, when secular practices also take upon it something sacred or, or mirrors something sacred. And, and now we have to, like the, the article I did is, is a comparison with another case that is in Vietnam where that turtle has been put in a temple where people actually do come to pray. Yeah, So, so that's a very different sort of discourse that is happening there. But, but what is interesting when you compare it is that they, they sort of 
they use the same element to to create that sacred feeling um that that is that is interesting when it comes to how we display how we preserve um extinct species and what they come to mean for us and and what they represent in a, in a bigger narrative of of where they are being uh, displayed and in what place they are being displaced because we we connect that very tightly together the place and 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 the animal remains I will also just just say that this this is a, an an analytical tool that we sort of we we're reading this into the way that Lonesome George is displayed. I, I don't think that uh, the conservationist wouldn't necessarily have thought that this is the, this is sacred, but but we are reading the way that they interact with the place as uh, almost like a sacred sacred act uh, of of defining that site specifically to have some sort of 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 meaning to them and especially because it has this tie to Darwin this was where he he came up with with his uh, evolution theory so so this space we need to safeguard because it matters to us um, I mean first of all to give an answer of what the sacred means seems actually impossible for me to do um, I know that what happened when I read Gide's text was that the first thing I commented on was like Huh, sacred to science, but what about exactly sacred in the way that we don't know how to deal with it, you know? Where do we put that? Like, why do we need to, you know, like, sec secularize mm. the sacred, you know, like, to be able to use it, you know? And then I realized that I'm using it so differently mm. than, you know, I'm exactly talking about this dimension of something that is supernatural if we call it that or that is spiritual if we call it that i mean terminology is a huge thing here right so so that was like my first comment it's like oh sacred to science but what about sacred for like the river or like what about sacred for religious communities or you know because these narratives often get very very difficult to deal with in in the discourses that surround like heritage studies or I don't know, basically everywhere, right, within academia. So I think with like when the Grove enters UNESCO or Ushun enters UNESCO, what I call it, right, like according to which interpretation you used to go with, like they're different answers, right? So one could be, yeah, exactly, like focus on the neo-colonial character of UNESCO, right? Like the, the, the Eurocentric tradition that it grows out of. Not saying that it's Eurocentric as much anymore, because there were different changes within the politics. But many, many scholars would still argue that the way that UNESCO asked people to manage their sites, like are indigenous people included? What about the spiritual? What about the sacred relationship? How can an institution like UNESCO deal with that? It's not just about a forest and a river being inscribed into a Western or Western originating protection institution. It's also about those energies that are in that river and in that forest. And how can we manage to talk about this, you know? So, but then I choose to ask, okay, so why? Why is it then happening? It is happening, right? Like it got declared. So what is it that we can learn from this? You know, what is it that is being taught to us? And maybe that's exactly asking these questions, right? So why does Ushun enter? Like, what is it we discuss right now? And um, then we could talk about is UNES, is, is the Ushun Ushokbo Sacred Grove actually sacralizing the institution then? Like, what is it bringing into the institution? And I feel this is what the, thinking different is this is what thinking creative is because then we start asking these other questions and and then we start thinking through the river not just as a natural phenomena but what is it in all its dimensions also the sacred mm. you know mm. 
Mm-hmm. I think that um, if I also wanted to connect some dots in relation to, to both of you and thinking about this relation to the non-human that both of you, or you said it, Anna, very beautifully before, this like thinking differently in relation to the non-human, which is like also thinking in this minor mode. I think you mentioned it before in the in the preparations. But something here is always, again, with the animal disturbs yeah. me, uh, disturbs me a lot. And that is because I'm trying to think, okay, so if we want to kind of know these new ways of learning how mm. to live with the non-human or non-human or the non-human animals in that case, so to display them in a glass box, mm. is it, who benefits from that? Is it, is it for humans to consume? Mm. Is really Lonesome George is living now in this way that you depict Gitte, mm. this liminal way, yeah. right? If I introduce this concept, yeah. is this... That, that 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 they keep on living but in a liminal way right they're after life in that sense yeah. but is it so is it their afterlife or is it our and I, it's now that we think i think a lot about the difference between you know holy places and the places that are holy because there is a grave of a of a holy person right yeah. a rabbi or a figure right that you go and visit yeah. in that sense it's 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 very similar um to that but i'm thinking is it is it for the animal is it is it a new ways new modes of living mm-hmm. no these these are really interesting questions and and i think so what, what we try to just show with lonesome george is, is as you say this like liminal space that you're not you're not quite you're not quite ready to give him up yet so mm-hmm. you you keep his body as close to life as as possible even though he's also dead, yeah. So he's sort of like in that in that space between and the threshold uh, of not really being. We haven't accepted the death of him. That's also why he is uh, he's displayed as a symbol of hope. That is because we still have a belief that we can somehow restore him. We can somehow bring him bring him back to life, like a what we call a de extinction, um, and which could probably be true with the technology we have today. But it's just the question is, do we want to do that? Is that is that the path that we want to go? Bringing extinct species back? Shouldn't we have cared for them when they were already here? Shouldn't we exactly. have stopped before we got so far? Mm. And you are right. Like when you put I think that this is discussion that we need to have more, and, and especially with animal studies within the museums, is is to to really ask ourselves both why do we put them on display and should we put animals on display? What happens when they're on display? And I think that that is why it's so so difficult to to move to move into the post-human because that would actually be looking at the animals as as if if we respected it at the same level as humans, right? right. Like exactly. If, if to... they are the subject, not the mm. object of our inquiry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then then you could start to think, yeah, we have these discussion about human remains. We don't want to put human remains on display. We sort of very careful. And, and I think mm. something needs to happen in within the museum in the same way that we start to to talk about the ethics of, of display, of of what we can display, where we can display it, and who has the right to do it, right? Mm. But uh, but I think all of this really come down to to human non human relations. And uh, yeah, it's, I would say I would I would almost have prefer a monument for for Lonesome George than mm. than necessarily having his body on display because that would have made a space where you could go to mourn him and and go to mourn the loss of him 
I think what, what I found so interesting also with what you did in your article was that it reminded me a lot of this uh, article from Braidotti, like this, the post-secular, right? Mm. Like this idea of the distinction, the binary between secular and non-secular is actually way more blurred than we think. So basically... This, the non-secular does exist in the secular as well as the other way around. And I yes. thought it was playing very kind of like mind provoking with exactly this blurring the distinction between. And I think this is interesting because then for me, we get to what it's exactly about, that these these divisions of reality is artificial. And, and I think this was very, very interesting to me, at least. Um, and that's minor. No, that is a minor way of thinking also the sacred in itself actually <laughs> like, we can end yeah. with like this uh, you know the, the minor is this using the the major language in a, in a disruptive way 